You're listening to Conversations at the Cohen Center, a space for intellectual engagement, interdisciplinary collaboration, and a vibrant graduate community at James Madison University. Welcome to Conversations at the Cohen Center. I'm Becca, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Chris Blair. With a research focus in digital rhetoric and writing, Dr. Blair is the author, co-author, and editor of nearly 100 publications on gender and technology, online learning, electronic portfolios, and graduate education. Her most recent book, Techno-Feminist Storiographies, Women, Information Technology, and Cultural Representation, challenges larger rhetorics of technological innovation that exclude women's historical and contemporary contributions. Thank you for joining me today, Chris. Oh, thank you, Becca. I'm delighted to be with you. All right, so let's just jump right in. Could you tell us a little bit about your scholarship? Sure. I've always been interested in my work of exploring um, the politics of digital literacy acquisition. And so throughout my career, I've um, investigated that topic in a number of ways. I've been very interested, as your introduction suggests, about um, exploring, um, you know, the issues facing women and diverse others whose access to technology might be mediated by inequitable systems of, of difference. Um, as part of that process, I've worked with adolescent girls. Jen Almgeld and I know each other through our work at Bowling Green State University. In particular, I directed um, a computer camp for adolescent girls called the Digital Mirror, and Jen was a vital um, part of that particular project, as were a number of doctoral student women while we were all together at Bowling Green. So I've really tried to align the theories of digital literacy access, the idea that women and girls need a, um, you know, strong, supportive pipeline. And then once they're in, say, STEM or IT culture, they really need to feel as if they are welcome and belonged in that culture since the data, the statistical data about how many women actually remain in those in those spaces is um, very very, very disappointing still, despite all of our best efforts. So that's one area of my research. So you mentioned working with Jen, who is the Graduate Program Director of Writing Rhetoric and Technical Communication here at JMU. Could you tell us a little bit about your work with graduate students and stuff like that? Sure. I worked at Bowling Green State University for 20 years, 1996 to 2016, and I was a faculty member in the Rhetoric and Writing Doctoral Program, where it was an honor to work with um, former students and now dear colleagues and friends like Jen. And my work there was really, um, as a computers and writing specialist, working with both undergraduate pre-service language arts teachers and um, doctoral students who are going to um, assume responsibilities teaching um, first-year writing in university settings and and other courses across the writing curriculum, including graduate courses, really helping them to integrate technology into um, their classroom practices. So I taught a lot of courses on computer-mediated writing theory, on multimodal composing. That's where some of my interest in digital portfolios came to be, and also um, this idea of, you know, digital identity formation um, through that portfolio development and other types of spaces, um, whether it be social media or just, you know, online participation in professional and social forums. 
You are here at JMU today as one of Feminisms and Rhetoric's 2019 conference plenary speakers. Could you give us a little review of what you said during your talk yesterday? Well, it was a real honor to be asked um, to give a, you know, a public talk like that at this conference. As I mentioned in my opening remarks to that um, speech yesterday, I've been coming to Feminism and Rhetorics for 22 years. Um, So really felt like I was a part of the conversation and part of um, the community. So to be able to um, offer some history about the conference, I had attended the very first one in Corvallis, Oregon, and, um, you know, have been going pretty, pretty regularly. I think I've only missed two in that, in that whole time. So basically 20 years worth of conferences and to really give some sense of historical trajectory about our value systems and the ways in which, um, over that time, our understanding of the spaces in which feminist, um, work, feminist activism occurs has, has really, really broadened and the ways in which we need to um, bridge any perceived gaps between the academy and the public sphere with regard to feminist theory and feminist practice, as well as the way to, in our respective roles as faculty members, as university administrators, really look for ways to support faculty, students, and staff who want to engage in rhetorical feminism, as Cheryl Glenn has has termed it. So that those were, that was pretty much the focus of of my talk, and so I was. Really really honored to give that bit of history. I was going to ask, have you been involved with Femrep before? So you've obviously been going for a very long time. Yeah, I just love this space. I love this space. It's just one that I always keep coming back to because I I sort of joked yesterday. I mean, there are lots of challenges to doing feminist work in the academy. Not everyone understands what you do. There's a lot of challenges to doing feminist work in the larger culture. Um, You know, there's sort of that stereotypical understanding of of feminism. And so really um, looking for ways to theorize those experiences and looking for communities of support that you don't necessarily always have on on home campuses um, as you try to talk about the connection between this work and um, other areas of the curriculum, the way it connects to social justice and preparing people to be um, diverse world citizens, to think about feminisms in both local and transnational ways. So I just think that, you know, this space provides provides all of us an opportunity to share, to create a sense of community and solidarity, and to really test um, what we're working with and get and get good feedback. Yeah, we have attendees from Hawaii to Florida. So. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Yeah. All in the Shenandoah Valley this week, which is so beautiful. I feel very fortunate that I only had to commute in five hours, and it was just a lovely, lovely drive on Wednesday. Yeah, we did have people stuck at some airports. We yeah. had we had one panel where the most of the presenters were stuck in a car in Syracuse. Oh no! So they skyped in to their panel so they could still work. Like, hey, so hey, and present. that's that's what the technology affords. That's definitely one of the um, affordances and advantages. Certainly there are, you know, disadvantages, but that works that people can get, you know, be present and, and participate. Since you've been going to FEMRAP for so many years, has there been one thing that you really love that happens at each conference? Or are they, since they're held, um, it's held every two years at different locations, is there one location that really struck you? 
it's hard to say I've enjoyed so many of the conferences. I know that people um, always joke about the um, Houghton, Michigan conference because it was so incredibly hard to get to. It was sort of late fall um, like it is now, maybe actually a little bit earlier um, when it was held back in 2005. But um, I actually made it and so did all of our crew from Bowling Green. And so um, to have such a large cohort of um, students there, you know, graduate students, who are now colleagues um, and friends. I mean, Jen was at that conference. Um, other people were there. And um, just that sense of, of community when you're bringing a group of people and, you know, thinking about the ways um, feminist work informs your graduate program. I think that's really exciting. And we've certainly had that at other conferences um, throughout the years, but that's one distinct memory that was, was very, very fun. And of course, I remember the very first one, um, as I spoke about, in in my talk, um, you know, the one in Corvallis um, from Boundaries to, to Borderlands. And that's a really interesting one for me because I was a new faculty member and going with, um, you know, new colleagues who were very collaborative in their approaches to um, feminist work. And uh, so to be with them and to become a part of their community felt really special to me. It's also sort of very sadly the same weekend that um, Princess Diana was was killed um, in that horrific accident. And I actually go back and think about that because if you think about even, I didn't mention this in my talk yesterday, but even toward the end of her life, the way she had become not necessarily a feminist activist, but certainly an activist for um, the marginalized. For social change. For social change. Her work at the time with um, landmines, um, her work with, you know, AIDS and HIV, um, all of these things that are her legacy um, in in a positive way. I think when you're part of that cult of celebrity she was, there's a lot of baggage that goes along with that legacy. But if you can look toward the the positive there. And so I thought about her as I was crafting that talk and was thinking I was going to work that in, but didn't have an opportunity to do so. The theme of this year's Femret is DIY feminism. How do you see that being embodied in the field of rhetoric today? Well, I think a lot of it, and I might be biased here, is is really coming through these diversities of technologies that we use to um, represent um, activism and represent our our feminism. So a lot of that is tied to hashtag activism of of social media and really understanding why certain uh, moments, if you will, as I alluded to in my talk, how do those moments become movements and in the way that say Me Too has and the way that Black Lives Matters has, um, really understanding that connection between these um, ripples um, um, and the the sense of impact that they actually have on the larger culture and the difference they have the potential to make. And so I think on one level, DIY activism has the potential to let people, you know, on the margins, um, you know, everyday, everyday feminists and everyday feminism, um, you know, sort of riffing off of um, Sarah Ahmed's work, this, this idea that um, you're not alone. 
Um, and through these types of opportunities, you, you come together. I think it also broadens, um, our modalities, uh, for, you know, circulating feminist work. So this whole notion of, you know, knitting and crafting and all of that type of, um, you know, production work is really critical to, um, bridging that gap, as I mentioned earlier, between the academy and, um, the public sphere. And how um, that brings feminists together. When I was introducing you, I mentioned your book. So, what inspired you to write techno feminist historiographies, and where do you see this research moving forward? Well, I was always very interested in, you know, women and technology and understanding that um, historically and, um, you know, in our, in our current culture, there is um, a perceived assumption that technology is a male enterprise. And so, as a as a feminist and as a computers and writing specialist, I was also very interested in the role of narrative in capturing um, those those stories of of difference for women and even for other populations. I've done a lot of work with older adults and digital literacy, um, so computer literacy, and so I always thought allowing people to um, share their stories to help them understand and theorize their experience experiences with technology to know that it's not some innate inability to use technology. So you hear in the larger culture, people will say things like, oh, you know, I have a love-hate relationship with computers. You know, computers, technology doesn't like me. Computers don't like me. And so they, they you know, um, ascribe all this power to, to this machine, um, you know, and sort of put themselves in this um, subordinate techno- position to the technology as well to the as well as to those who identify themselves as expert usually male and so the challenge i think is that if you actually look at the history of technology um and computer technology in particular i mean it is indeed a much more gender fair and um, collaborative enterprise so i was really looking at the ways in which women historically had been involved in those collaborations so you have to start with um, people like Ada Lovelace and her collaboration with Charles Babbage. You have to look at sort of the the unknown. So um, everyone talks about, you know, the first modern um, computer, one of the first modern computers in um, the 20th century, ENIAC. Um, but usually what they don't know is the role that women um, mathematicians played as um, programmers for that machine and how it the time they received little to no credit. So they were always referred to um, as the women of ENIAC rather than actually um, listing their names and talking about their histories and how they came to this work because they didn't want to be teachers. Um, not that I'm a teacher myself. That's not a bad thing to do. But, you know, in in the early 20th century, mid 20th century, there were such narrow career paths for women and even for women doing science and and, and other STEM um, sort of careers. So the idea that um, there are these pockets of um, innovation that really have a clear 
trajectory. And so as I was doing that research, I got, you know, I even broadened it beyond computer technology because it was so, in, you know, tied to mathematics and engineering that, you know, I started learning about more about the women of NASA and not just the hidden, the important hidden figures of the, the movie fame, but also other people as well, like um, Mary Golda Ross, um, one of the first Native American engineers, women engineers, and um, her history and how, as I mentioned in my talk yesterday, that's only becoming more visible and really sort of juxtaposing the rhetorics with the reality. So, uh, you know, you have this history of women having a much larger role in um, technological innovation than is credited to them in the larger culture and even in some of the histories. And then you look at popular representations of that history and of women's roles in IT in general, and you just find this incredible gap. So you look at um, films like, you know, The Imitation Game and and all of that. You look at um, television shows like Silicon Valley um, and just the way those histories and those cultures are, um, you know, representative of, of a tech bro culture, if, if you will, in the case of something like Silicon Valley that actually does exist. But at the same time, what are the roles of, of women in that culture? And that's why um, stories of people like Shannon Lubitek that I included in my talk yesterday, the Snap software engineer who quit and wrote this letter, which in, in my mind is sort of a form of DIY activism. She she wrote this this email to everyone at Snap. It gets picked up in larger, you know, IT media and then goes more mainstream. And so she has her, you know, her moment of, of fame, but really um, not necessarily shame Snap, but is definitely part of that important sort of reminder that, you know, you need to, you need, these IT companies need to walk their talk. Google, Facebook, Snap, um, you know, all of them really need to, you know, look at their um, rhetorics versus realities of um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, and so I think that work like that does, achieves that goal. Are there any spaces that you see of like DIY feminism in technology today that are like really interesting to you? Well, I think that, you know, again, that whole notion of, of hashtag activism and, um, the ways in which, um, we make certain types of issues visible. But one that's always been, um, striking to me is, um, sort of the rewriting of, of history, if you will. So where do people get a lot of their information about anything these days? Wikipedia. They get a lot of their information from Wikipedia and there are a whole host of projects. And I think there's even a presentation here at the conference about sort of um, rewriting um, Wikipedia. Because if you look at the data on that and how many of the editors are uh, male as opposed to female, uh, there's been like in the IT industry and in STEM, um, there's been notable efforts to um, rewrite or create entries for um, women, notable women in science, Um, certainly beyond my knowledge, certainly beyond the average um, individual 
people's, you know, awareness and to be able to write them into the history of information technology in the ways that I was trying, as many people before me and after me will do, to recover some of those voices, to create a sense of story. Um, it's sort of, you know, it, as an English professor, it sort of seems to me, you know, we always talked about literary canon busting. Um, it's it's a little bit of that. It's sort of historical canon busting of, of IT history just by being able to um, remind and rewrite and um, foreground those those stories. And so instead, I'm not, um, you know, my training isn't necessarily in historiography, um, but I found myself suddenly embroiled in a lot of history and looking at a lot of data. And, and so I came up with this notion of the storiography because I am so, in, so very interested in that role of narrative as a research methodology for allowing people to theorize their experiences and represent their histories with, with technology. And for me, that really gets into the themes of feminisms and rhetorics because it's that plurality, um, not a singular notion of feminism, not a singular notion of rhetorics that um, ties in with that particular project. So I was really honored to be able to share a little bit about that project yesterday. If if you tell your grad students to read one scholar, who would it be and why? Oh, my goodness. That is such a difficult question. Um, I don't know if I can answer that. I think if I had known that that question was coming, <laughs> um, I would have um, selected, um, you know, someone so, so, so compelling. Um, I think I'll, I'll pass the buck and say that I think that graduate students simply need to make themselves aware of um, the history of feminism and rhetoric and composition. So um, reading people like um, Andrea Lunsford and Lisa Ede and their work on collaboration, reading people like Cheryl Glenn um, and Rhetoric Retold and her new work. I'm such a such a fan of of her work. Um, I find it I find it so compelling and um, so so able to um, speak to us at this conference and beyond. Um, so I very much am um, attached to that. But I also think that we need to sort of read individuals who um, remind us to be more um, intersectional in in our thinking and not to take, um, you know, technology at face value. So one book I've found just really compelling very recently is Sophia Noble's Algorithms of Oppression, just a great book. And she's talking about some of the racial and racist assumptions um, tied to um, our access to information. So if you start to type the phrase black women into Google, all the horrific things that pop up as as a result. And so understanding that, um, you know, technology is not um, ideologically neutral. It has um, designs upon us. And um, so being aware 
of that, especially for young people, um, you know, for students is, is to me, you know, an important part of that critical literacy. Um, you know, Stuart Selber, um, in Multiliteracies for a Digital Age came up with that sort of trajectory of functional, functional literacy, critical literacy, rhetorical literacy. Um, I would also add there needs to be like an ethical literacy as well. And so, um, finding a way and finding tools that help students, um, become more critically aware of technology and not to take it at face value so they understand the consequences of, of that use, the the affordances, the possibilities, as well as the constraints. So I'm sorry I don't have, you know, an exact answer. Um, that's, you know, I think it's knowing knowing the history of, of feminism in the field and often, you know, being a little surprised when people are less aware of that history. And then also sort of understanding the ways that feminism has, you know, such a such a public impact on how we see the world and how we interact with the world through um, a range of genres and modalities. That's really been the focus of my work for, for a very long time. So I think my answers are probably biased in that regard. Well, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for oh, joining me thank today. thank you. I hope you'll edit this so I don't sound as rambly. Oh, <laughs> it was great. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for this episode of Conversations at the Cohen Center. Thank you for listening to Conversations at the Cohen Center. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at JMU Cohen Center. If you'd like to get in touch, email us at cohencenter at jmu.edu. Our intro and outro music come from Phase 3 by Zylo Zico. You can find out more about them at freemusicarchive.org. 